I'm a little excited today because I get to ask a question I've been dying to ask for a long, long time, and it's this. Am I the only one, or has the world gone crazy? Okay? I'm just asking what everybody else is asking. I'm just saying it out loud. Has the world gone crazy? It is an angry, 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 and you add as many angers as you want, world, and you're probably not even close, right? Maybe, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's probably, it's COVID, yes, right? It's the economy, it's the economy, it's, it's uh, maybe it's politics. I mean, I, I like American politics, but since I've come to South Africa, man, South African politics, you guys are the major leagues, all right? I'm like, I have no idea what all these little letters mean and all these little groups mean and what this all means, and I don't know if anybody knows what it means, but it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I can't make any sense of it. Um, so you guys, you guys take the cake on that. Um, maybe it's the environment. Uh, maybe it is uh, injustice, definitely injustice. Um, and I'm just going to just really go for broke. It's probably everything and whatever is in between. All right? And I'm watching it, honestly. I am watching it, and I am trying to understand. I am trying to understand. I am look, list, trying to listen to all sides of the story, all right? I follow people on Twitter I like, and I follow pe people on Twitter I don't like, all right? But I've got to admit, maybe they have something to say that I need to hear, all right? And I'm trying to understand the root causes. I'm trying to spot as best I can the fundamental issues, the common denominators. Is there any kind of you know, common ground? Are we all wanting the same thing, but we're just saying it in a different way? But, and I'm, if I'm honest with myself, and maybe if you're honest with yourselves, if we just took a moment and, and we put our emotions and our preferences aside, maybe at the end of the day, there are a lot of explanations that are just hard to hear. Maybe there are things I don't want to hear, but I got to hear. And I can relate to that on a very personal level, all right? My wife and I, Amy, uh, I think she's serving today in this service and everything, but we just celebrated 20 years of marriage, all right? And to me, yeah, that's a milestone. I think that's a milestone, all right? And, and I don't know, but um, when... Uh, Maybe I'm the only one, but I, I don't like to hear criticism. I just don't. And even people say, hey, I just want to give you some constructive criticism. All I hear is the second part of that, okay? I don't hear constructive because even in construction, for those of you who are in construction, there's got to be some destruction before there's construction, right? You got to tear something down before you build something up, right? So I don't like that. I, don't, I really, I don't like that. And, and, and especially when it has to do with my issues or my faults or my sins, and I just don't like it. I just don't like it at all, even though it might be necessary. And the reason I mention uh, Amy as my uh, 20-year anniversary is that I'm just reminded of what we were like 20 years ago. Uh, we were in love. It was ideal. We didn't know much about each other, but everything we did like, we know we liked. And, uh, you, know, um, you know, when we were even uh, warned early on, before we got married, we were warned, now, you're going to need to understand how to handle conflict. You're going to need to know how to, when you're angry at each other. And we both looked at each other, literally. It was sick. We looked at each other, and we're just like, <gasps> I can't remember, I can't think of anything I'd be angry with you about. <laughs> right? Right? Because that changed very quickly. In the hours, in the days, in the weeks, in the months, in the years that have followed, we have learned much about each other. And shockingly, there's a lot that Amy doesn't like. There's just a lot that she doesn't like about me. Right? And, and, and there have been so many times, so, so many times that Amy has actually given me feedback and that, that, that has kind of fall into the category of hard sayings that's it's like not been very pleasant to hear that I did not like however as our relationship has grown and as uh, hopefully each of us has matured I have learned that the vast majority of things that I've heard from Amy uh, it, you know how many times is that the hardest things to hear are often the most loving things to learn let me say that 
again, the hardest things to hear are often the most loving things to learn. We don't want to hear it, but we need to hear it. And the reason we hear it is because we need to learn it. And these hard-to-hear things that Amy has given me um, have really honestly pushed me to be better. They've actually prompted me to re-examine myself and, and see myself from a different point of view. It's challenged me to seek and to portray the full character of Jesus intended for me to experience and furthermore to emulate to others. I got people watching me. I've got kids watching me. I, as a pastor, you live your life kind of in a, in a, in a, in a fishbowl and people watch and they, they want to know like what you say and what you challenge them. Are you living it out? And, and these hard to hear sayings, um, you'll push me to try to emulate the character of Christ. But when it's something that is hard to hear, most of us don't naturally like this, do we? Think about it. When someone makes an observation about your physical health, when your doctor or maybe someone you love or, you know, says, hey, uh, I think you may need to you know, lose a few pounds or maybe you need to change your diet. That's a big one. That's what's like, hey, you know what? That's not really good for you. You know, we don't like that, right? It's weird. Our physical, our physical health is personal to us. I mean, people say, well, don't take it personally when it comes to your physical health. It is personal. It's you. We don't like that. We don't like that. What about your financial health? You know, hey, you know, you, you talk about how much debt you have and, and you're worried of paying the bills. And someone would say in one way or shape or another, hey, maybe in order to in, uh, increase your quality of life, you need to lower your standard of living. Maybe, maybe if, you, if you really don't want to be burdened, maybe you can't, you can't have that car or have that house or live where you want necessarily right now. Maybe in order to increase your quality of life, you've got to lower that standard of living a little bit. That, we don't like that. What about your emotional health? Your emotional health, you know, you're, you're struggling with an issue. You know, I've, I've sometimes like, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I've gone to a counselor. I've gone to a counselor and I didn't, the first time I went to my counselor, I hated him. I'm like, I'm not sure why I'm paying you because I hate what you're saying to me. And he's like, dude, you got some, you got some issues. You know, I'm like, well, that's not very loving, but I did, I did, and it put me on the road to health when I started to embrace these hard things. Your relational health, you're not getting along with your spouse, you're not getting along with your parents, you're not getting along with your friends, and at the end of the day, it takes two to tango. It, like, you know, it's like, well, it's their problem. Well, really? Have you ever asked what's it like to be on the other side of me? Like, maybe I'm the problem. Ugh, that can't be my problem, but we don't like that. We don't like that. Or maybe it's your spiritual health. Maybe you're just, maybe God's not come through. I don't feel close to God. Uh, God just isn't answering my prayers. Well, at the end of the day, there's a lot to be said about that. Because the question is like, well, like, are you asking God to be more like you? Or are you trying to be more like God? Are you trying to conform to the, the image of his son rather than trying to get his son to be more like you, to make you feel better? And on all these instances, why are some truths, what's the common denominator? What are some, why are some truths hard to hear? I think most of us, um, it's because we feel like we're losing something, right? It's like when we, when we get this feedback, when we hear something that's hard, it's like we have to lose something. We're forced to accept some of these hard truths. We have to admit we're wrong, that we missed the mark, that we didn't measure up, that we weren't accurate. Maybe that's a value for you, like precision and accuracy, and maybe you were off, or maybe you were just weak, and we hate that. But in other words, wherever it kind of shows up, in the end of the day, we probably don't like it because we feel like we've lost something. And in this world, if you want to sur survive, if you want to thrive, you better be in it to win it, right? But can I tell you that when you look through the lens of Scripture, it's the complete opposite. When you look through the viewpoint of Jesus, it's actually the complete opposite. And we're in this series, Hard to Hear. And I, I've been excited to speak. I've been a little bit scared to speak because when I'm talking to you, I'm talking to me. But we're looking at some of these hard sayings of Jesus. And, and Pastor Randy kicked off this series by reminding us that some of these sayings are hard. And maybe some of them are hard to understand. But at the same point, he also said, these, some of these sayings are not hard to understand. They're just hard to practice. They're just hard to practice. And today I get to tackle one more of these sayings. And, and it would be nice. It would be nice if I could say, well, this is one of those sayings that's hard to understand. 
I wish we could say that, well, we just don't know what was really meant by it. I wish I could say that you know, we have to really kind of contain this saying in, in its historical context because there's something to learn, but it's not really apropos for us today. I wish um, that I could say, well, that was for a different time, a different place, a different people long, long ago, and it doesn't really apply to us today. Honestly, in my heart, in my mind, in my relationships, in my experiences, in my present moment, I wish I could say all of that, and yet I can't. I can't. It's not hard to understand. It's not hard to comprehend. It's hard to hear. It's hard to accept. And it's probably really, really hard to put in practice. And so as we get ready to look into this, I want you to turn in your Bibles if you have them today, and the scriptures are going to be on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be starting in verse 43, and I'm just going to sum up the main point if I run out of time today, and the main point of this whole message is when it comes to our enemies, we're not in it to win it. We're in it to win them. When it comes to your enemies, we're not in this to win this. We're in this to win them. And what I find most uh, shocking about this passage and the hard sayings of Jesus is that Jesus didn't care how we felt when we heard it. He didn't try to temper this and soften this. He did not then, and he does not care now about our feelings when it comes to this principle. He makes no apologies for making these statements. He does, in fact, contrary to our world's tendency to try to soften the blow, to make it easy, to make it simple, to make it more appealing, to make it more pleasant, Jesus actually goes for broke and takes the opposite approach, and he raises the standard. He, he eliminates the loopholes. He destroys our excuses, and he narrows the definition. You know, when it comes to Christianity in general, boil it all down, and it comes down to two things that Jesus consistently said in the Gospels. He said, number one, the good life isn't what it appears to be. If you're looking for Christianity to enhance your life, you got to think about it a different way. The, the good life isn't what it appears to be. If you want to live the good life, Jesus says, don't pursue happiness first. Pursue God first. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. And this is radical and life-changing in and of itself, if we can put thing, first things first. But number two, he also said, obedience counts. Yes, we need grace. Yes, we need mercy. Yes, God is a God of love. I love what we worship today and everything. It's like, hey, even when we're not holding it together, he holds it together for us. Even when we fall down, he picks us up. Absolutely and everything. But at the end of the day, Jesus also said, obedience matters. There's grace and there's mercy, but obedience matters. And we tend to see God's commandments as downers, don't we? Tell me about the grace. Tell me about the love. Tell me about the forgiveness. But God, Jesus also said, hey, there's some things I expect you to do. Obedience counts. It matters. And we have to see that God's law does not make sure to take away our joy, but it actually gives us joy. I tell my daughters, look, make better decisions and you'll live with fewer regrets. Say no to the things you want right now so you can say yes to those things later on without regret. God is not telling us to, it's not withholding joy from us. He's trying to preserve us and protect us and set us up for pure joy without regret. He wants us not only to obey, but to obey from the heart so that we not only act rightly, and, but think and love rightly as well. I love what Pastor Dylan said last week. I hope you either were here or you'll, I'm going to remind you of it. But last week he said something that bears repeating. He said, many times we interpret what we hear and read based on what we think it should mean. And if it's too confusing or hard to digest, we may tend to accommodate meaning that is palatable to us. How many of us do that? And that's what happens with these hard sayings of Jesus. And that's what we as Christ followers have to face if we're going to make a difference in this world. We've got to face our tendency to do that 
and make a decision. Are we going to do what we want in order for us to live the good life we define, or are we going to follow through and obey and live the life that Jesus intended us to live? There are three dynamics. I was sitting there, and I've talked with Pastor Randy and a couple other people about why is this world so angry? And, and I kind of like, you know, it's not completely accurate, but I think I've boiled it down to at least a few things in case you're wondering. Three dynamics have merged recently that creates the perfect storm of anger in our current world. One, I would say, is that the first is everything has become politicized, and there's no neutral topic. There's no neutral topic. We can't discuss anything today without having to be told to take a side, make a, make a, take a stand, and fight for what we believe in. There's no neutral topics. There used to be. There used to be this idea is like, well, that's your, that's your belief, and we could trade and, and kind of accept. I had friends like that in school. We could, we could argue, but we could still be friends at the end of the day. It wasn't personal. Now everything is personal. Number two, the thing that's come into to, to vogue is cancel culture, right? Cancel culture. We live online. We live our lives online. And, and I was talking with my kids about this. Once upon a time, if you broke up, you know, some of us are older, older adults and everything, when you had to break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you had to call them. You had to face them. You had to hear that voice, that trembling, that crying, that tears. Like, you hurt them, and you had to hear that. When you made a decision, you had to face the outcome of your decisions. And now online, it's simply I block them. I unfollow them. Facebook doesn't even have the, the guts to let us know when they do that. They're enabling us to cancel each other, and I don't have to worry about it. No consequence on me. Boop, you're gone. You've been erased. So there's another problem right there. It's emboldened us to do things without the consequences. But three, and this is where we as Christians have to kind of embrace the truth, is that we have, uh, we have uh, absorbed and, and, and if, let something infiltrate us called, for a better word, cancel or culture war Christianity. Culture war Christianity. I define that as the version of Christianity consumed with winning. It's consumed with winning. Culture war Christianity, in fact, is more concerned with winning than loving. It seems, it, it sees itself perpetually under attack. And there's always been, from the beginning of, the, of our faith, there's always been perpetually persecution. Jesus told us to expect it. Jesus said to endure it. Jesus said it's going to happen. But we see ourselves perpetually under attack, usually by government. We say secularism, and we feel the need to attack back, that we've got to fight for our rights. But can I tell you that culture war Christianity does not, is not more consumed with winning than it is loving? And culture war Christianity doesn't reflect the first century version of Christianity, nor does it reflect the, cult, the example of Christ. It's incongruent with the character and life of Jesus. Someone said throughout history, when the church has opted for the tools and the machinery of the kingdom of this world, the church ends up looking just like this world. <sighs> Ouch. And it says, and the church ultimately becomes a pawn, unattended consequence. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus says time and time again to his disciples that he is not concerned with winning the world's game. You, you think about it, when Jesus affirms at the statement that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you're not like anybody else, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but, and he's going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But then he says, that's what's going to happen. But here's what's going to happen. I have to die to let it happen. And his disciples push back, and they say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just made this amazing statement. You made this victorious statement. We just found that we joined the winning team. You're the Christ. You're the one that we've been waiting for. We, we've, we, we're on your team, and you're going to build your kingdom, and the gates of hell will not prevail against, but then you're going to die? Well, then how do we win? You can't do this. One of his disciples says, no, I'm not going to let it happen. No, that's not the way you're going to do it. And what is Jesus' response? Jesus actually said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, 
but merely human concerns. Ow! Sometimes we intend good things, but boy, we can be sincere, but we're sincerely wrong. Ouch. And Jesus also said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be in my club, whoever wants to be on my team has to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and not their rights. So when we demand our way, when we're in it to win it, we lose our effectiveness. When we push our own agenda, we become just another organization with a self-serving agenda. God forbid, that is not what we're intended to be. But this isn't a new behavior. And in this passage, Matthew chapter 5, we see probably one of the hardest statements Jesus ever made. Look with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You have heard that it's been said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is one of six amongst many statements in, the, in, the, in Matthew chapter 5. And if you look at the pattern, Jesus said this many times. You have heard that it was said. And that's a really telling thing because it's what they've grown up hearing their whole lives. Think about what you've been taught your whole life about different people. People who have opposed you, uh, perceived enemies of the world. You have heard, I heard it said, I grew up in church hearing a lot of things. And I just took it as faith value. And as a grown up, well, even before that, I got to university. And imagine I've met Christians who believe differently than me. Whoa, time to go to war. Time to go to war. Because I couldn't believe that you, you say you're a Christian, but you believe differently than me about this issue. I thought we were the same. How disappointing. You have heard that it's been said, and that's what they heard. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I want to ask, you, ask yourself, how much of what I believe is based on what I've actually read in Scripture versus what I've simply been told was in Scripture? Come on. Love your neighbor is certainly a biblical principle. Absolutely. It's originally, Jesus is not making this up. He's actually quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18. But if you go back and read that whole verse, look what it says. There's a little bit more to it. It says in Leviticus 19, 18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I don't see anything about hating your enemy on this. Whoa. Whoa. Love, Yes. But the command to hate your enemy is nowhere in Scripture. So let's just define an enemy, all right? Let's just really get on the same page of what an enemy is. I would define an enemy as anyone who wishes bad against us or who acts against us. It's either or. It doesn't have to be an actual act. Someone who wishes it bad against us or acts bad against us or both. An enemy is against us in heart or action. They don't have to do the bad. They just have to wish the bad. And today's tendencies of enemies, it's either active or passive. They'll either do evil or they'll just cancel you. They'll just cancel you. And I think that's the kind of the, the, the weapon of choice nowadays. And we all want to pretend that we don't have enemies. I want to pretend that I don't, I, no, one, no one hates me that I know of. If you do, keep it to yourself, okay? Remember what I feel about criticism, <laughs> right? But I'll, I'm going to be honest with you. There's a, here's a hard saying right myself. As a Christian, it's hard to not have enemies, it's our, Jesus warned us. He said in Matthew chapter 10, a few chapters later, he says, the disciple is not above his teacher, nor the servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, in other words, if they have called him the devil himself, how much more will they call those of his household? Folks, it's just gonna be natural as a Christ follower to draw some enemies. No matter how good, no matter noble, no matter how nice you are, there's someone who's not going to like you. There's going to be someone who is going to be your enemy. However, there's another side to that concept. 
It may be hard to hear, but think about it. Are there people in your life that you wish bad about? Are there people in your life that you have acted in one way, shape, or form evil towards? Isn't it fair to say that you are their enemy? I don't have any enemies. Did you ever stop and think that you might be considered an enemy of someone else? And are you okay with this principle that's always been thought? Are you okay with them hating you? It may be hard to hear, but it sounds like it's inevitable that we're going to have enemies. So what do we do? Jesus says, love your enemies. I tell you, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for people who are actively doing evil against you. Why should I love my enemy? Jesus answers it. He says, do this so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, so you do this so you can imitate the God that you claim to love and follow. Do this so you look like your dad. Biblical love is counting someone else's needs as more important than your own. I'm not in it to win it, I'm in it to win them. Consider this, the church has never been at its best when it rose up to fight for its rights. It's been at its best when it stooped down to wash feet. The church has never exuded more positive influence when it laid down its life and it picked up its cross. It's hard to hear, but recognize it's a key theme of the whole Bible, depicting God that shows love to people who make an intentional effort to be his enemies. I'm still caught coming out of Easter, Jesus hanging on the cross. They have accused him all night. They beat him. They've mocked him. They betrayed him. They've humiliated him. They put a crown of thorns back. They made him carry his own cross, and he's, 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 he's up on that cross, and what does he still have the, the strength to say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. And I don't have time to unpack that, but wow, we see a God that at his, in his worst moment, he still loved the people who intentionally were his enemies. It may be hard to hear, but God's kingdom is not about fairness. That's not fair. (laughs) Where's that in the Bible? That may be what you heard, but that's not what was written. It says, he causes, Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute them. It's not fair. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He actually makes the natural uh, weather and everything. They get rain, you get rain. Everybody gets rain. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It has nothing to do with how good you are. It's the goodness of God. If we had our way, if we had our power, admit it, we would allocate precious resources to only those we deem worthy. And we have all been on the recipient end of that, haven't we? Someone has had the power, someone has the resources, and they decided who got it, and oh, that just, that infuriates us, that that antagonizes the justice within us, and then what do we do about it? What does God do about it? It may be hard to hear, but if we just love those who love us, We're no better than the people who don't know God at all. He calls us to love without limits. And I would challenge you in your daily 20, take Matthew chapter five and just read this. It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. It certainly is not the rules to win, but it's what Jesus said is a character of the kingdom. If you say you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is is your, your, your bucket list. This is your checklist. This is what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. And I would challenge you to read it. 
And I would challenge you to notice that there is never a comment in this passage, this passage of how we should feel about it. Someone said, in the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. They get off. They get away with it. They get loose, and I'm stuck with the bill in the shadow of my hurt. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving person to another. My sin put him on the cross, folks. My sin put him there. If it, it, you know, it wasn't your sin. It was my sin. And I want forgiveness. I want access to the kingdom. I want to be like that thief that didn't have a chance to make up for what he had done. And all he did is he turned over to the side and said, just remember me when you come into my kingdom. And Jesus said, today, you get to be with me in paradise. You don't have to make reparations. You don't have to make amends. There's nothing you could do. You're going to die. You're going to be dead here in about 10 minutes and everything. But you get in. You get in. That's not fair. That's Jesus. Our world and our culture regard love as a feeling. I just don't feel it right now. But biblically speaking, love is a choice that we make, probably on a daily basis. If you love and action the people God commands you to love, your feelings will follow appropriately. Maybe not now, maybe not immediately, but, but eventually. But you can't do this if you're stuck in a victim mentality. You may actually be a victim, and I'm not here to deny that you aren't a victim. I'm not saying that the things that have happened, you didn't happen. I'm not here to gaslight you. I'm not here to cause you to cause them to denial. It happened. It did happen. But can I tell you that someday, the, the judge of all the universe is going to judge rightly. At the end of the day, but if you can't live, you can't stay in a victim mentality. You may have justifiable reasons for being a victim, but that will not lead you where you want to go. Consider the writing of Martin Luther King Jr. He said, there's another reason why you should love your enemies, and that is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated, or the individuals hated, or the groups hated. But it is even more tragic, it's even more ruinous, it's even more injurious to the individual who hates. For the person who hates, the true becomes false, and the false becomes true. That's what hate does. And here's why we have to get this right. Here's why we have to get this right, folks. It's because we have a growing generation, a generation that's coming up. It's already here. It's moving into the areas of influence and power that is walking away from the Christian faith. They're leaving the church. They're disavowing the claims of Christianity because they've listened with their eyes and they've watched the generation that come before them saying they believe this, but they haven't lived this. They're a generation that learns with its eyes and thinks with its feelings and they've, they haven't seen the change in the difference that they've heard about. They haven't seen the change in the difference that they were told about. And as a result, they're, con they're convinced the principles of God's word are not even true. Loving your group and hating every other group is normal. That's what everybody does. But Jesus expects his followers to do better than that. Disciples of Jesus claim to have something that no other faith can offer. They claim that they're redeemed. They claim they're renewed. They claim they're restored. They claim they're empowered. They claim they're set apart for good works. For all those reasons and more, it's right to expect more from such people. God expects more from his people than he does those who refuse and reject his people. Verses 46 and 47, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? are not even the tax collectors doing that. And that's a pretty low standard. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. There's no power in that. There's no, there's no God in that. And yet they can do it. It may be hard to hear, but in the kingdom of God, the rights of those who belong to the kingdom go down 
while their responsibilities go up. Let me say that one more time. In the kingdom of God, those who belong to the kingdom, their rights go down and their responsibilities go up. Someone said, the church always looks more Christ-like when we're defending other people's rights than when we're defending our own. I know this sounds hopelessly unrealistic. I know that you, know, you can tell me, look, you, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about sometimes. I'm preaching to myself today. Is it really possible to do this? Or is it so naive that you're literally, why don't you just leave your door open and let anyone walk into your house and steal anything you have because it's just that naive to leave yourself that vulnerable. But actually, I'm telling you, it's the only hope this world has. Could we ever argue, honestly argue with this? Imagine if everyone acted like this. Believe me, that's the world I want to try to live in. The problem isn't that it's not something to long for. The problem is that, it's, that it looks impossible and we would be right. It is impossible. Nobody could ever meet the standard. Jesus said, nobody could ever keep their word no matter what, bless rather than retaliate every time and love their enemies consistently. No one could ever love this way except Jesus. Jesus did. And that's why this passage ends. He drops the mic and says, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There's the standard. You gotta be perfect. You wanna be a member in the kingdom? There it is. The only way we win is if we're perfect, just as God is perfect. And I'm sorry to tell you this, we don't match up. Maybe I kind of blew your perception of yourself today, but you don't match up. But if you're careless with your promises, just as retaliatory with your actions, you hate your enemies just as much as people who don't know God, you have to wonder, you just have to wonder, how am I doing? How am I doing? But I wouldn't panic yet. See, Jesus intended to ruin our confidence. Jesus intended to say, you know, this isn't a works-based faith. This isn't, this isn't something where I have to do it all because you can't do it all. And that's exactly the point. You don't do it on your own. You don't do it to impress God. You do it with God. When you see that once upon a time you were an enemy of God and that God lavished his love on you instead of retaliating and you recognize and you embrace and you live knowing that Jesus was willing to die for you, his enemy, extending forgiveness and new life to you, it'll change you. It'll change you. You wanna really truly live the good life? Treat others as extravagantly as God has either treated you or you want him to treat you. Shock and awe everyone by striving to love your enemies. The, the world expects us to hate our enemies. Shock and awe them. I discipled a group of people and I said, you know what, we are going to shock and awe anyone and everyone that comes in our group, expecting us to treat them one way, we're gonna treat them Christ's way. You're gonna raise an issue, you're gonna you reveal a sin, you're going to behave a certain way and we're not gonna do what everyone thinks a Christian's gonna do, we're gonna shock and awe you. It was amazing, it was powerful, it wasn't easy, it wasn't conflict free, but it was amazing. If you can't bring yourself to love your enemy right now, don't wait to start praying for them. Pray blessings upon them. Pray, pray anointing upon them. Pray provision for them. Pray healing. Pray, pray for guidance. Pray anything good. And ultimately, behave in a way that people who are pleasantly surprised when they recognize the Christ family resemblance. That's what a Christian does. The real reason for so much anger and hostility as we get ready to close today and invite Desert to come 
I really just encourage you to just allow the Holy Spirit to bring that person, that situation, that circumstance that he's wanting to bring to your mind today. Maybe you never intentionally set out to create an enemy, but you know there is one. Someone that either you have done evil to or wished evil to. Maybe someone feels that you've, that you've just simply done that. Someone's done that to you, but then there's someone out there who thinks you've done that to them. Can I just tell you the real reason there's so much anger and hostility and decreasing influence of Christianity today is this. And it's probably the hardest thing that I'm gonna say. And it's the hardest thing to hear. But remember, the hardest things to hear are often the most loving things to learn. There may be people in this room there may be people watching online. Maybe there are people in your circles of influence that you know this applies to. You're not a Jesus follower. Maybe you were once, but you're not anymore. Maybe you never want to be. And maybe one of the reasons that you've given up, you're looking, you're searching for meaning, you're searching for purpose, you're searching belonging, but you're certainly not coming here. And here I mean into a, a Christian group. Maybe you've chosen, I'm not gonna explore Christianity at all. And it's not simply that you don't believe it. It's not simply that the, the evidence is not there. But you wonder if sometimes if we believe it. You've heard our, our rhetoric. You've heard what we, we say we believe about God, the Bible, love, truth, grace, forgiveness. But then you look at the way we live. And you look at the way we treat people. The reason you're not more open to believing what we believe is because you're not convinced that we truly believe it enough to live it out. So on behalf of anyone and everyone that identifies this as a Christian, I'm here to say I'm sorry. I'm here to say, please forgive us. I'm here to ask God to help me come back to what his word says and not just what I thought it said. Say, forgive me. God help me to love my enemies. Pray for those who persecute me and strive to be perfect like my Heavenly Father is perfect. Those who worry, those, uh, those who want to be like their Father in Heaven, it may be hard to hear. It's pretty, it's pretty clear what we need to do. When it comes to loving my enemies, I'm not in it to win it. I'm in it to win you. I'm in it to win them. There's someone out there that we may be the only Jesus they ever see. I want another chance. I want another chance. I'm not in it to win it. I'm in it to win them.